This is They Create Worlds, episode 105, The Big Voice of Magnavox. One, two, three, if anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We would like to welcome you all to a brand new year, a new decade, 2020. Alex, I'm not with you this time, so we can't clink glasses like last year. But (laughs) through the magic of podcasting, I'll throw in some sort of glass clink right now. Very good. And to celebrate the new year with everyone, We'd like to make one happy announcement that we've been wanting to do for a while, and that is a book giveaway. (laughs) That's right. So guess what, everybody? I wrote a book. Yay. As longtime listeners know, I have been working on a book for a very long time, and that book did actually release back at the end of November. They Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry, Volume 1, 1971 to 1982, now available directly from the publisher, CRC Press, as well as through Amazon and other major retailers. There's print books, there's e-books, both Kindle and through CRC's own kind of proprietary company that they use for stuff outside the Amazon ecosystem. But that is all out there. It's all available. We would like to reward our longtime listeners here, or even our recent listeners, any listeners at all, really, with a book giveaway to start the year here. What we are going to do, we talked about this a little bit in a past episode, but what we are going to do is we are going to give away at least two, maybe more, signed copies of the book. These books will be signed by both myself. And by Jeff, the book is mine. I'm the writer, but the They Create Worlds brand is way more than the book. And the podcast is a huge and critical part of that brand. And without Jeff, that part of the brand would never exist. Because even if I went to the effort of learning all the sound editing stuff, doing something like this on a regular twice a month basis, uh, no, I know my personality, that would never, ever happen. So Jeff is a big and important part of all this as well. And since we're giving this away as part of the podcast, we are both going to sign the copies of this book. So here is how the contest is going to work. The contest is open right now. And you can go right now to, where can they go, Jeff? They can go to theycreateworlds.com slash giveaway. Exactly. You can go ahead and enter this competition or drawing, whatever you want to call it, anytime between now and February 1st. We are cutting things off midnight February 1st. So you have the whole month of January to throw your hat into the ring. We have a global audience and we plan to make this a global contest. 
We reserve the right if shipping gets too crazy (laughs) to figure out some kind of alternative just because we are poor podcasters. But we do plan to accommodate this worldwide with that caveat, with apologies in advance. If it just becomes too cuckoo for some reason, we'll figure out some other way to compensate somebody if it comes down to that. But there are going to be two classes of drawing here. First of all, anyone who is a patron of the podcast at the cutoff time, midnight, February 1st, because we do have a Patreon account and some people do give us money for this uh, content that we bring to y'all. If you are a patron by uh, midnight, February 1st and, and an active patron at that time, you will be entered into a drawing just for patrons. We don't have very many patrons right now. We'd love to have more. But if you are a patron, that means unless this triggers a cascade of new joinings, you actually have a pretty good odds in that drawing if you're one of our patrons to get that copy of the book. So we are automatically entering everybody. If for some reason you don't want to be a part of this drawing, you can always contact us and say, hey, take my name off the list and we won't include you in the Patreon drawing. Otherwise, every patron gets in. So that's the Patreon portion. Then we are going to do a second drawing just amongst all of our wonderful listeners. And yes, patrons, that does mean that you can double dip. You can enter both the Patreon drawing and the general drawing. You guys deserve to get something for your money. So uh, you get two chances to win if you are a patron. And you're automatically entered into that second drawing. That's correct. So if you're a patron, you don't need to register for the general contest. We'll get you in there. You can register if it makes you feel better, but it won't get you another drawing. Anyone who goes to the website, which we previously mentioned, and registers for this drawing during the month of January, from the moment this podcast releases through uh, midnight GMT, February 1st, will be entered into the second drawing. Our plan is to give away roughly one book per 25 entries. So we don't know how many books we're giving away right at this second. We're going to do a hard cutoff of no more than four. If somehow this generates a thousand entries, it won't. But just for the sake of argument, you know, we can't break ourselves giving one per 25 in that case. So there'll be a maximum of four available, but it may be less than that because it just depends on how many people enter the contest. But it should be more than one unless everybody really hates us and nobody signs up. In which case, congratulations, you're the one person that likes us and you get a book. So (laughs) just to recap all of that, since I've been rambling, contest for a signed copy of the book signed by both myself and Jeff opens Midnight GMT January 1st when this podcast drops. It remains open through Midnight GMT February 1st, so you'll have a full month to enter. Patrons are automatically entered in the patron drawing. One of our patrons at our Patreon will get a copy of the book. Patrons will also be entered in a general drawing, so they get two bites at the apple. And anyone else who wants to can go to that website, which again, Jeff, is... Theycreateworlds.com slash giveaway. And enter for a chance to win. Then we will draw winners from that and... Somewhere between one and four additional people will get signed copies of the book. Worldwide contest, though we reserve the right to cut that off if the shipping just becomes too crazy to certain areas. 
And just to be 100% clear as far as the Patreon thing goes, if you want to get in on that drawing, you might want to do that soon because you have to have been charged for you to be entered in, not just signed up. That's an excellent point. All right, get those Patreon subscriptions in if that's something that interests you or just uh, get to that website and uh, we'll give out a few copies of this book. It's a pretty good deal because it is a fairly pricey book. It is an academic publisher. They tend to charge more. I can guarantee you that if you are a fan of video game history and if you aren't, why the heck are you listening to me right now? You just love his voice that much. (laughs) This is a book that will give value for your money. Only you can decide what anything's truly worth, but trust me, there's a lot of stuff in here that's never before appeared in English, never before appeared in any language in some cases, and it is the most comprehensive look at this early period, 50s, 60s, 70s, up to the very early 80s that's ever been done. So there you have it. That is what we're going to do. But that's in the future. Right now we have a podcast to do, don't we? That we do. To coincide with our loud and boisterous ways of talking here for the last 10 minutes or so, we will now go into the Magnavox voice as it speaks to us as a company. But we've covered it before, way back in 2016 for some reason, what with their patent lawsuits and their odyssey. But this is not just that. It's a whole well-rounded company with people and places and credit cards and keys. <laughs> Something like that. So, right, we did look at the Magnavox Odyssey specifically, and then we did look at some of the lawsuits around that. But we haven't taken a general look at the Magnavox experience within the video game industry. Because they were, at the time that the whole industry fell apart, they were the longest-running company in the consumer business. They literally started the consumer business with the Odyssey in 1972, and they were in the industry from that date all the way until 1984, and systems were probably still on the market even until early 1985. So for a long time, they were the longest-tenured company in the industry until the whole thing disintegrated and they uh, never tried to get back in again after the revivals. They're worth looking at, and there isn't as much information necessarily on an insider basis about what went on at Magnavox as there are at some of these other companies, just because Magnavox, despite being the originator, was also very much and also ran. So this won't go as in-depth as, say, the Atari episodes, which is why we think uh, we're very confident we can do this in a single episode, but it will bring together some disparate threads and uh, a little bit of new insider information to present the story in a way that hopefully you haven't quite heard it before. I imagine we have to start back before they were even in the video game industry, back when they were just making loud voices in a small box. That's right. Well, Magnavox does mean great voice, and that is not in any way coincidental. However, the company was not founded as the Magnavox Corporation. It was founded in 1911 under the very sexy name the Commercial Wireless and Development Company. Wireless? That sounds like radio. Radio was barely around then. Well, so, no, but this is even before radio. We're talking about before you had the entertainment medium of radio, broadcasting. This is radio, but oftentimes today when you say radio, you think of NPR. But before you had radio as entertainment, as broadcasting, you had radio as point-to-point communication. 
the West Coast of the United States was actually one of the major hubs of early experimentation into wireless communication. I think in part just because the western part of the United States is very, very big. And so it's the kind of place that needs that kind of communication device in order to try to bind it together a little better. So in 1911, three individuals got together to form a new company that was devoted to this new wireless communications business. Two of them were electrical engineers. Peter Jensen, who was actually Danish. The Danes were actually very important in early wireless experimentation as well. So we had Peter Jensen. We had Edwin Pridham, who was a Stanford engineer. Stanford, by this point, already has a very well-regarded electrical engineering school. Again, electrical engineering really flourished in the West, in the United States in general, and in the West in particular, because it was a real challenge figuring out how to electrify the entire United States, which is just a wee bit bigger than, say, Europe is. And so there was a lot of work being done on electrical engineering, and Stanford, even at this early date, was already one of the hubs for that. So we have these two electrical engineers, and then we have a San Francisco financier named Richard O'Connor, who's the money behind the operation. So Jensen had gotten his early education in Denmark at the knee of uh, Valdemar Poulsen, who was the inventor of one of the very first magnetic recording devices. This was before magnetic tape, though, actually in the very early days of recording, and this was very, very quickly superseded. But in the very early days, they actually used magnetized wire to make recordings instead of magnetized tape. Poulsen was one of the first people to come up with one of these recording methods, and Jensen had learned from him. And then in 1909, he came to California and was part of an early spinoff of Poulsen's activities in Denmark when he founded uh, a spinoff company in the United States. And then while he was there, he met Pridham, and then they went off and they founded their own company, this uh, commercial wireless and development company in 1911. So they started out trying to work on both wireless communication and telephonic communication, telephones. This was kind of where their focus was, and they were trying to create a better ARC radio transmitter that could be used as part of the telephone system. They wanted to get a contract with AT&T. Well, that didn't work out for them. Their system, while it worked, was very bulky and very impractical, and AT&T decided to go in another direction. So at that point, they really had no idea what to do until 1915 when a blacksmith named Ray Galbraith came by the lab. Galbraith was a very big baseball fan. Back in those days, you had announcers at ballparks now hitting Bob Bobson, just like you do today. They may have had a megaphone. I mean a analog. I don't mean a megaphone like today where it's electrically amplified. I mean one of those giant cones. No electronics, no electricity. They might have something like that to amplify their voice, but you couldn't hear them. Ballparks were much smaller than they are today, for the most part. But still, you had a lot of trouble hearing this person because there was no such thing as electrical amplification of sound in that kind of medium. They had just barely cracked electrical amplification of sound for wireless communication. They weren't doing loudspeaker systems yet. But Ray Galbraith was like, you know, I really wish you could hear the announcer better at a baseball game. Maybe you guys with your fancy 
communications, telephone things could do something about that. And Jensen was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't I do something like that? So he worked for several months, and then on December 10th, 1915, in San Francisco, he demonstrated what, so far as I know, was the very first public address loudspeaker system ever. I don't know if some random guy was toiling away in his lab somewhere, too, and technically beat him by two months or something, but the common story is that this is the very first one, and certainly was the very first major commercial one. So they called this loudspeaker system the Magnavox, because that's Latin for great voice, and the system is amplifying your voice. So that's where the Magnavox name comes from, though at this point it's not the company name, it's the brand of this loudspeaker that they start to sell. So they do the loudspeaker thing in the late teens, but they very quickly kind of get pushed out of that market by other bigger companies, particularly uh, AT&T again, which uses their telephonic knowledge to get involved with that kind of stuff. They end up merging with a phonograph distribution company, the Sonora Phonograph Distribution Company, because they were buying a lot of records from this company because as they were testing the system, they were making various recordings and they needed a lot of records for that. So they were doing a lot of business with this company. And the company became very curious. It's like, why are they buying all these records? And so they learn about the loudspeaker system and the head of that company is like, hey, this is kind of cool. So uh, Frank Steers, who's running this other company, Sonora Phonograph Distribution, thinks that they should go ahead and merge together. And so in 1917, two years after the invention of the system, Commercial Wireless and Telegraph and Sonora Phonograph Distribution merge into a new company, and that's when they take the name Magnavox as a company name. And like I said, they do the loudspeaker thing for a while, it works for a bit, but then they get pushed out of it, just because there's other companies in a limited market. By this time, we're talking the early 1920s, this is when radio is starting to become a commercial entertainment medium, where broadcasting is happening instead of point-to-point communication, which is all that they'd been doing with wireless before that time. They very naturally move into radio, into building radios in the 1920s, and that's how they get into this consumer electronics business, even though they didn't really call it the consumer electronics business back then. That's really what it was. Radio was basically the first mass-market consumer electronic device. They do that And then the Depression hits, and the Depression is bad for them, just like the Depression is bad for everybody. They barely, barely make it. They almost went bankrupt. They're able to limp along until World War II happens. Once World War II happens, all of the electronic companies in the United States do great, because now the military needs electronics of all sorts for the war effort. And so the lucrative war contracts come in, and the company manages to be saved. I should also mention that during this time period in 1930, I think, they actually moved the company. They had started in California, they picked up a few things in other places, and then they decided to do a consolidation in the middle of the country. So they actually moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana from California. For the rest of the time that we're discussing a Magnavox here, it is an Indiana company, even though it was founded in California. Coming out of the war... They're in a little better shape, but they're not one of the leaders in the radio business. RCA is definitely the big dog there. They kind of need to push into other areas. Uh, And in 1950, they get a new president. 
a Hungarian emigre named Frank Freiman becomes the CEO, and he has the bright idea to get them into the television business, which in 1950 is just really starting. The first television sets were developed, the first commercial television sets, I should say, were developed in the late 1930s, but World War II interrupted before anything really got going there. So now in this post-war period is when television is really starting. And Magnavox is on the ground floor for that. They get in pretty early, thanks to uh, Frymon here. So in 1950, Magnavox was a $32 million company when Frymon took it over. By 1967, it was a $450 million company. Most of that was on the strength of television. They still had other stuff going on, but television was their big thing. At the end of the 60s, they got into some real trouble. First of all, Frank Fryman dies suddenly, unexpectedly, in 1968. So they've lost their visionary leader. And they had no succession plan, really. Right. So, yeah, a guy named Robert Platt takes over the company. But, right, they didn't have a real succession plan ready, and they didn't have their visionary anymore that had really pushed their growth. The other thing that's happening right in this period is Sony is coming up with a little thing called Trinitron. What the heck is Trinitron? Well, for our older listeners, they will recognize that right away. Trinitron was the Sony brand of television that they released in the mid-1960s. It was a color television brand. Basically what happened is you had the big American television companies, RCA, Zenith, Sylvania, Magnavox, and they built these huge console televisions where you just didn't have your 18 or 25-inch screen, which were kind of the, the standard screen sizes, at least at the start of the 1970s. You didn't just have your 18 or 25-inch screen and just a little plastic box around it like some of our older but not quite as old listeners might remember from the late 1980s or the 1990s. No, you had your screen and then you had this big wooden piece of furniture surrounding it. You didn't put your television on a table or a TV stand. Your television was a piece of furniture. It sat on the floor. It had essentially a mantle on top of it, and some of the more elaborate ones even had some built-in cabinets and drawers and storage compartments. Televisions were huge, and it was the same with stereos. You had what are called console stereo systems. When we're using console in this context, we're not talking about your NESs, your PlayStations. We're not talking about video game consoles. The term console actually comes from the fact that back in the day, both stereo systems and televisions were in these big floor model wooden enclosures. And it's actually that freestanding floor model wooden enclosure that was the console that housed your television or your record player or whatever else. And the American companies made these big things. Part of the logic of that is they might as well make a big thing because the television itself is pretty big and bulky because it's entirely tube-based. Obviously, the cathode ray tube is generating the image, but I'm not just talking about the CRT. I'm talking about 
there are no solid-state electronics in there. There's other tubes in addition to the CRT to power the television, so it's big and bulky. By the mid-1960s, transistors and integrated circuits are coming in, but these American companies are not pivoting to that quickly. They kind of have a monopoly on their market. I mean, there's multiple companies. It's not like one company's dominating, but this small group of companies has basically been able to keep prices steady and keep models steady. So it wasn't just one company that had a monopoly, but what they did is they did something called price maintenance. And I don't know exactly how this worked, but my understanding is that these price maintenance policies allowed the television companies to kind of artificially keep their prices high in order to maintain excellent profit margins and in order to better keep competition out. This practice is ended at the beginning of the 1970s by the FTC because it does reek of monopoly. It sounds like, from my limited understanding of it, that's essentially a price-fixing scheme, and the FTC kind of gets wise to this and forces the television companies to end it. They're selling these big televisions, and they don't have an incentive to change quickly because they have an ironclad grip on the market. But then Sony comes in with Trinitron, which is a color television system that is sharper and more vibrant than the color systems that are being used by the U.S. companies that had been largely pioneered by RCA in the 60s. They're coming in in smaller, more compact, cheaper televisions because they are moving to solid-state circuitry. It's still a CRT, of course, doing the image. We're not using LCDs or any of that fancy stuff that people use today. They're using solid-state for a lot of the other electronics. So it's smaller, it's cheaper, and it's better. Trinitron just completely upends the market. It's the beginning of the end of the American television industry. You'll notice that the televisions you buy today, they're Sonys, they're Samsungs. Some of the brand names still exist of the American brand names. Even those American brand names, it's not the American companies anymore. The American television industry was completely wiped out over the course of about 20 or 30 years, and this was the beginning of that process. The stronger American television companies were able to last longer than some of the weaker ones, but throughout the 1970s, they start falling away, and you get the rise of the Japanese television companies, and then, of course, even later on than that, the rise of the Korean television companies that are now kicking the butts of the Japanese companies for kind of the exact same reason that the Japanese were able to <laughs> to uh, take out the Americans. It's like this vicious cycle. But that's televisions. That's kind of beyond our scope. We are a video game history podcast. But why I bring all of this up in this context is at the beginning of the 1970s, Magnavox is in trouble. Their visionary leader is gone. Their television business is under threat from newer, better technology and they can't just pivot directly into that. Their stereo business is also under threat because at the same time you're getting these solid-state televisions coming in, you're getting component stereos in. It used to be that when you bought a quote-unquote stereo, you bought, again, one of these big consoles, one of these big boxes, and your entire stereo's in there. But now we're starting to get into component stereo where you choose your mixer, you choose your tuner, you choose your record player. A little later on, you choose your cassette deck separately. All of these parts, you choose your speakers and you mix and match and you put them together yourself. And 
you put it in a much smaller space than one of these big consoles. So they're just out of step with the times. They start frantically looking around for other things they can do. They get into office furniture because they're already making furniture. Televisions and stereos are furniture in this time period. So they try to get into office furniture because they're kind of doing that already. They try to get into car alarms and security systems because a lot of the electronics in there are similar to the electronics in the television. So they're kind of halfway there already. They also then end up taking this chance on video games. I think Magnavox was hurting more than some of the other major television companies at this point. Again, I haven't studied this issue closely, but I think companies like Motorola, General Electric, and RCA that were a little bigger, a little more diversified, a little more well-established weren't hurting quite as much at this point as Magnavox was. Magnavox was kind of one of the canaries in the coal mine one of the first ones that was really starting to be in trouble. And I think that's probably why they were interested in the Odyssey when most of these other companies weren't. We're not going to talk about the creation of the Odyssey itself because Magnavox didn't do most of the creation. It happened with Ralph Baer and his team at Sanders Associates, and we already did an episode on that. Suffice to say, when Sanders went out to the television companies and started looking around for a partner to actually bring this thing to market, They approached all of the television companies, and they were turned down by all the television companies in the United States. They weren't dealing with foreign companies like Sony, except for RCA. RCA was the one company that was willing to sign on, which kind of makes sense. RCA was also hurting at this point, though not because of its electronics business. It was hurting because the chairman of the company made a series of really boneheaded diversification moves, buying food processing companies and Hertz Rent-A-Car and all of this other weird stuff that was driving the company down. And I think they were looking for new markets too. So RCA almost does a deal with Sanders. And then at the last moment, Sanders pulls out of the deal because they don't like the terms. I don't have a copy of that contract. I don't know what that contract said, but my understanding is basically they wanted complete control of everything. While Sanders was wanting to give complete control of a lot of things, they didn't want to completely give up everything. That deal falls apart. But one of the negotiators on that deal was a guy named Bill Enders. We talked about some of this in our Magnavox Odyssey episode. A little bit of it will be repeat, but it's important to reiterate in the Magnavox context. Right after this negotiation period, Bill Enders leaves RCA to become the Director of Business Development Operations at Magnavox. So even though Magnavox had already seen the technology and had already turned it down, Enders was one of the guys that was really impressed with it at RCA. And so when he comes to Magnavox, he's like, guys, let's take another look at this thing. And since he's in a business development position, that's his job is to go out and find new business opportunities. So he's able to arrange a demonstration at Magnavox. The demonstration is for a guy named Jerry Martin, who is the VP of Magnavox console products planning. Just to pull that apart, Magnavox is our company. Mm -hmm. Console products Again, console products are things like televisions and stereos that are in these big consoles. Furniture. Right. Product planning. That means he's the guy in charge of figuring out what we're going to make next year in console products. So he's basically the guy that's in charge of deciding what the television arm of the company is going to be doing on a yearly basis. They demonstrate for him in July 1969 in Fort Wayne. 
Ralph Baer and his technician Bill Harrison fly out to do the demonstration. Martin likes it, but it takes him a while to get his superiors to get on board. Magnavox is a big, somewhat diversified company, and they never make decisions quickly. And the fact that they don't make decisions quickly is part of the reason that they're in this problem in the first place, because they're not pivoting fast enough. It's nearly a year before he finally gets the green light to negotiate a deal. And it's almost another year after that before the deal is finally consummated. So even though the demonstration was in July 1969, the deal is not signed until January 1971. Just as a reminder, regular listeners and connoisseurs of video game history alike will already know this. Even though the Magnavox Odyssey comes out in 1972, it is 1960s technology. Because Ralph Baer was designing this thing in the mid-1960s, and it was designed to be relatively cheap. It's still a very expensive system, but as cheap as he could get it using mid-1960s technology. So he was not using state-of-the-art mid-1960s technology. He was using mid-range mid-1960s technology. And then instead of that technology being used in the 1960s system, it's being used in an early 1970s system. So Moore's Law tells us we have something of a problem here. Uh, It is a digital system. There's kind of this idea that's floated around in some circles that it's analog. And this is mostly because the Atari people tried to push this in the patent lawsuits to try to distinguish their technology. It is not an analog system at all. It is digital. It has transistors in it. That's digital technology, not analog technology. But it doesn't have integrated circuits. Because integrated circuits were still on the cutting edge in the mid-1960s, and the cutting edge was too expensive. So it uses diode-to-transistor logic, which means it has discrete diodes and discrete transistors. It doesn't have microchips. It doesn't have integrated circuits. Bayer did most of the concept work on this. Magnavox brought it home. An engineering team led by a guy named George Kent did the final engineering on it. They did the industrial design on the case. They contracted out to an advertising design company called Bradford Coote to create the actual games, because as we've talked about before, the system generates three spots, two controllable by the players, one controllable by the machine, and a single line that can be a varying height and can appear on varying parts of the screen. Those are the only graphical elements. Creating games for this thing actually required artistic design visual design, creation of overlays that would have additional graphical elements and define additional game rules. For instance, there was a skiing game, and the skiing game, the player controls the dot, but you can't create a skiing course on the screen because the system can't generate that. So there's actually an overlay that has this curly, squiggly, going everywhere kind of line. Then it's your job, and it's entirely on the honor system, Uh, It's your job to navigate that dot through the squiggly line. Totally honor system because the game doesn't know if you've left the line. The squiggly line isn't part of the game code. Not that there's code because it's hardware, but it isn't part of the game machine. It's literally just an overlay affixed to the television via static electricity. At the time, most televisions, because you had this kind of unified monopolistic force of TV companies, most televisions were either 18 inches or 25 inches. So the Odyssey came with two sizes of overlay, one for 18-inch televisions, one for 25-inch televisions, which meant that it was basically universally compatible in the old world of television design. If you want to get more into how the Odyssey works, I'll certainly throw in some notes into the 
show notes going back to those episodes where we go into this in much more detail. Absolutely. The Odyssey starts out as being part of the color TV division of the company. It's thrown to a guy named Bob Wiles, who's the marketing guy in charge of color televisions. After they do the preliminary market research and they decide that this is something that's looking like they're going to do, they actually put a product planner on it that is specifically the product planner for this video game system and for nothing else. And that's a guy by the name of Bob Frisch. Frisch is a marketer. He has a marketing degree, but he joined the Air Force out of college and mustered out in 1970 at the rank of captain. And then after he was done with his Air Force service, he came and joined Magnavox in the purchasing department. And then in September 1971, he became the product planner for the Magnavox video game system. Frisch was the guy that had to decide how they were going to roll out this system. They made a few decisions. They decided that it was going to be a limited release. They didn't have the capability to blanket the entire country with it right away, which was not uncommon in those days. So they decided that they would release it in 18 major markets. Magnavox was divided, had divided the United States and maybe Canada as well. It may be U.S. and Canada together. I'm not sure. But they had divided it into 18 sales territories. That's how they operated. So they chose one city in each of their 18 sales territories. And that would be the locations that the system launched. Market projections showed that they thought they could sell about 50,000 units. So they decided that they were going to do a production run of about 50,000 units, release in 18 markets. And then one thing that they also decided to do, I think both because of the limited quantities, but also, and this is something Frisch himself said in depositions under oath, so this is certainly their thought process, also because they really wanted to push the video game as something that could help them sell televisions. So they decided to limit the product to their authorized dealer network. Magnavox, and I think the other companies at the time as well, just like you have car dealers today that only deal in one or two models of automobile, back in those days you had television dealerships that would deal in only one company's line of products. So if you were an authorized Magnavox dealership, you only had Magnavox televisions and radios. They sold through other outlets as well. I mean, they sold them through department stores and all of these other areas as well. But they also had their exclusive distributorships. And Magnavox made a decision that because they were hoping that the Odyssey could be used as a gateway to get people to buy televisions, they were only going to sell the Odyssey in their exclusive distributorships. And this was not Frisch's decision. It was made even a level above him. Frisch doesn't name the executive in his deposition, but he did say it was a senior marketing person. This was decided above his pay grade. Whether it was Jerry Martin or someone else or uh, Consumer Electronics Division President George Fazell, I have no idea, but way up the chain. So 50,000 units, 18 markets, exclusive to Magnavox dealers. Well, then a funny thing happened. What? They had really positive feedback from their market tests. They did a market test in California that went fantastically well. Then they did a second one in Michigan because uh, that would be a more conservative part of the country. And it did pretty darn well there as well. It seemed like the public was very interested in this product. 
So Frisch lobbied to do a much wider release. Now, they were still not going to be able to blanket the entire country. That was just impossible with their manufacturing capacity. But he wanted to get it in more of the country, and he wanted to really just ramp up production. He wanted to double the initial build from 50,000 to 100,000. So they do. They work really hard. They manufacture even more of them. They release in 25 markets instead of just 18 markets. And they end up well north of 100,000 systems. They may have even gotten as high as 140,000 systems. It releases in September 1972 under this Odyssey name that we have no idea where it came from. It is almost certainly some kind of reference to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which had just been successful in theaters the year before. It's futuristic sounding. Video games are futuristic. But the origin of the name has been lost to time. Frisch was asked in his deposition, where'd you come up with the name Odyssey? And under oath, he said, we tried our hardest to figure out where that came from and nobody remembered. (laughs) So, but it's almost certainly something to do with 2001 A Space Odyssey, just based on the times. They launch it. It does very well at start. The early units that get into dealers sell out pretty quickly. Dealers order more. Manufacturing is increased even more. And then sales hit a certain threshold and they stop. Stop dead? I mean, you know, not dead, but I mean, essentially, they built more systems than the market could absorb. They sell 69,000 units in that first holiday season, 1972. They manufactured somewhere between 100 and 140,000. So they had a lot of systems sitting in warehouses. It was kind of a little bit of a disaster. And this marked the beginning of a constant push and pull within Magnavox. There's always people within the company that are excited about video games, that are excited about the opportunities. And then when higher-ups in the company see the sales, see how many are actually sold, they're like, this is so small, this is so puny. We sell way more televisions than this. We sell way more stereos than this. Why are we bothering to market video games which don't sell much, which don't seem to lead to additional adoption of our televisions and just take up resources for no reason. And that's kind of the story of Magnavox through this entire period. The line is always just a step away from cancellation. And the Odyssey is very nearly canceled after that 1972 holiday. But they keep it going because it really seems like they just built too many. I mean, remember the initial marketing projection called for 50,000 units. And they sold 69,000, which means they bettered their original, more conservative marketing projection. Technically, they did kind of okay. The dealers were pleased, and the dealers were saying, you know, why don't you give us some more of these? These are doing okay. They started getting registration cards, feedback cards, from people that bought the system. What they did is they held back a game for the system as a freebie for anyone who turned in their registration cards. So they gave you a real incentive to turn it in. And the consumer feedback was positive. So they decided to keep it going. And they did a very small production run, like under 30,000 in 1973, to augment the many, many units they still had in warehouses. You know, it does okay that second year. It does 89,000 in the second year. So, you know, sales have gone up a little bit. During the same period of time, there are changes going on in Magnavox Consumer Electronics. So you have Magnavox Corporation, the overarching company. Then you have Magnavox Consumer Electronics, which is the division that's doing the televisions and the radios and whatever else. 
then the video game is a subset of consumer electronics. So Magnavox overall is still having struggles with its television business and with with its other businesses. Security systems ended up being a bad move. They're kind of struggling a bit. So in 1972, uh, Robert Platt, the president of the company, forces George Fazell, the head of consumer electronics, into retirement. Fazell had been with the company a long time. He was getting older, and they felt that the product wasn't getting the penetration they needed, and so the axe fell on uh, Mr. Fazell. Platt brought in a guy named Alfred DeCipio from Singer Sewing Machines. DeCipio was given a mandate to spice up the marketing of Magnavox products to get their products noticed more. He was known as a savvy marketer, and that's why he was brought in. Decipio does a few things that are also very helpful for the Odyssey. The focus is not on the Odyssey, but since he's revamping the marketing of the entire product line, just the very fact that he's doing this is helpful for the Odyssey as well. One thing that he had done at Singer Sewing Machines that had been very successful is he had done a big music special where Singer was the sponsor of the music special. So I'm not just talking about like doing commercial breaks, but even during the special, there'd be cutaways to Singer products and they'd be hawking the the Singer products during the television special. So Decipio decided to do the same thing for Magnavox. And in late 1973, they sponsored a Frank Sinatra television special. Sinatra had not been performing much recently, so this was kind of Frank Sinatra's return to performing. It was a huge deal. It's old blue eyes. Still popular. Still popular today, quite frankly. Yeah. They do this special where they showcase the entire line of Magnavox home products during this concert. So, of course, the Odyssey was one of the products that was displayed, advertised during the special. So that got the word out a little bit. He also signed a spokesperson for the company. They, I don't think they really had one before that. Celebrity spokespeople were coming a big thing. So he signed the baseball player Henry Aaron, Hank Aaron, in early 1974. Hank Aaron is a Hall of Fame baseball player, so that's all fine and good. But his level of celebrity was above and beyond Hall of Fame future, I should say, Hall of Fame baseball player at this time, because Hank Aaron had ended the 1973 season just a couple home runs away from breaking Babe Ruth's all-time home run record of 714. So Hank Aaron was actually one of the most famous sports personalities in the country in early 1974, because There was all of this anticipation because it was going to happen sometime near the very beginning of the 1974 baseball season. He was going to break this home run record. That was a huge celebrity pickup. So Hank Aaron became the spokesperson. And again, they used him in Odyssey commercials as well as in just general Magnavox television stereo stuff. They did a sweepstakes where they were giving away Odysseys. That sounds familiar giving away a product? Yes. Who does that? Who does that to generate interest? Mad people, obviously. (laughs) I know I'm going to go mad doing the whole process. Yeah, right. So during this period of time, Magnavox was becoming more savvy at marketing just in time to give Odyssey a little bit of a push. 
The early Odyssey marketing had been pretty hit or miss. They did television from the very beginning, but they had a real problem in that they probably left the consumer with the mistaken idea that it would only work with a Magnavox television. Despite what some sources have said, this was never, ever their intent. They didn't want to limit sales in that way. But you had a system that was called the Magnavox Odyssey in a television commercial showing it hooked up, of course, to a Magnavox television. And then, oh, by the way, you can only buy the Odyssey at an exclusive Magnavox dealer. People were not savvy about electronics back then. I would say they're not savvy about electronics now. Well, yeah, I mean, fair, right? Totally fair. You know, electronics keep getting more advanced and people fail to keep up as they become more advanced. But I think your average consumer in the 1980s or the 1990s would understand that any video game system will hook up to any television system. I mean, as long as you have the right connectors. Of course, if you buy a system that only hooks up through RCA and you don't have a television with RCA, then you have to buy an adapter. But I don't think anyone would have thought in the period of time when we were kids that a video game system would only work on a particular television. But back in those days when video games were brand new and nobody knew what the heck that was, they didn't know television technology. It was very reasonable to assume that if Magnavox is selling a Magnavox branded product in a Magnavox distributor, that you're going to need a Magnavox television to use it. I think this probably happened because it's very interesting. The very early Odyssey commercials have surfaced. Mm -hmm. The 1973 version of the commercial that you can see on YouTube and that we'll put in the show notes, specifically, they flash up on the screen in big letters, works with any model television. The 1972 version, the very first version, does not have that disclaimer. Hmm. So that says to me that they found out in their marketing research after that first holiday season that people really were thinking you had to have a Magnavox television. And so, of course, that greatly limits your sales potential because Magnavox is one of the bigger television companies, but they're not the only one and they're not the biggest. And I don't think they're even the second biggest. So that kind of hurt. The commercials are not very interesting. I think by getting the celebrity endorsements and some of this other stuff going on under Decipio, that that probably really helped out. So 1974 was by far the best year that they had had so far. They sold 129,000 units in 1974. Part of this was also another smart thing that they did this year. So the system was expensive. That's one of the things that was really an inhibitor. It was $100. That doesn't sound like much, but that's like $500 in today's money. You were talking about spending the same amount of money as you were spending on like a PS3 at launch to get a system that generated three dots in a line. And only two of those dots you could control. That's right. And you were paying about the same amount that, you know, you were paying for a PS3 when the PS3 launched. I mean, you know, in relative dollars, in, in spending power. And you had to have a television, too. Right, which most Americans did by that point, admittedly. But yeah, that's a big ask. So another thing that they started doing in this time period is they sold it for half price if you bought a new television. So, you know, if you're buying a new television, you're already spending a lot of money anyway. What's an extra $50, right? 
You get a little extra entertainment for 50 bucks. It's like getting anti-lock brakes on your car back in the day when anti-lock brakes were not standard. Yes, there really was such a time. I owned a few of these cars. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's an upsell. It's an upsell feature. Obviously, most people didn't take advantage of it, but it gets you a little more sales. They also actually decided to do a private label thing where they would manufacture Odysseys for other companies that wanted to release it under their own branding. This is something that was common in electronics and really common in video games during the dedicated console era in particular, where you had one company doing all the electronics, doing all the interior stuff, and then they'd sell it to another company and the other company would put their own case on it and put their own name on it and then sell it. So they started a private label as well. I don't think they sold many of the private label ones. And it's actually interesting. The private label was run out of a different division. So there was actually conflict between the video game division of the company <laughs> and the private label part of the company. They, they didn't get along very well. But, you know, they have these other things going on. They have released it internationally at this point. They did a small test market in Germany in 1973. And then they did a wider European release in 1974. So they get it out there a little more, they market it a little better, they do special deals, and so they get to 129,000 units sold in 1974, which doesn't sound like a lot, but cracking that 100,000 barrier was actually very, very big deal. I mean, when the dedicated console market starts up in 1975, Magnavox is the only company, again, with their dedicated console models, which we'll get to in a second, they were the only company in the first year to break 100,000 units even in 1975, when video games were starting to break in in the home. That's actually really good, even if it sounds pretty small. So they're starting to finally gain some traction. Up to this point, they've had the market essentially entirely to themselves. But things are changing. First of all, the cost of materials on this thing just keeps going up and up and up. Because, as we said, you didn't just have the console and its controllers. You also had all the overlays in two sizes, 18-inch and 25-inch. You had other components because the Odyssey used cards and dice and all sorts of other components as part of playing the game. And a lot of these components had to come with the game. The football game, you actually used cards that had individual plays on them to call the plays. There was a trivia game, a state's trivia game that actually had trivia question cards. In all honesty, a lot of the Odyssey stuff is more like having one of the big fancy board games now that just happens to yeah. include the television and three dots in a line. Exactly. Really, it's just a glorified board game. Right. When they started producing the Odyssey, and again, these are hard and fast figures that we have from Bob Frisch's deposition in the Magnavox patent cases, or actually from his trial testimony. We don't have his deposition, but we have the actual trial testimony that he gave in court. These are figures directly from Magnavox. When they started producing the Odyssey, it cost them $37. $5 of that was the extra materials, overlays, and game accessories. The other $32 was the cost of the electronics. They sold the system to dealers for $65. They didn't quite double the cost to their dealers. That's what their profit was, 65 minus 37. And then the public bought it for $100. By 1975, 
you have inflation starting to go out of control in the United States. So the cost per unit of the Magnavox Odyssey had risen a full $10 to $47. But they didn't feel that they could pass along that cost burden to dealers or consumers. So the system continued to be sold for 100 at retail, 65 to dealers, but the costs had gone up by $10 a unit for Magnavox. This was an untenable situation. They were starting to get squeezed really badly on their margins. And remember, throughout this entire period, the entire Odyssey project was always in some kind of peril of just going away entirely because it was small potatoes. Bob Frisch had wanted to create some different versions of the system. He had wanted to create a light version that was cheaper with fewer games. He had wanted to create a deluxe version that had four controllers instead of two and could play more advanced games. They had wanted to keep releasing new games for the system that were sold separately because the Odyssey came with 12 games packed in. There were six additional games sold separately, plus an additional four light gun games sold with a light gun controller. We talked about some of these games in more detail in our Magnavox Odyssey episode, so I I won't repeat that now. They wanted to create more games. They do create four new games in 1973, but those are the last four games ever made. They never make any more. They're not able to create different models of the system. Decipio comes in. He clears house of a lot of executives. I'm not sure that the new people that replaced them were necessarily as gung-ho about the system. In September 1974, Magnavox, because they're doing so poorly, is bought by the Dutch electronics conglomerate Philips. So in September 1974, Magnavox is no longer independent. Magnavox continues to operate as its own thing. Robert Platt leaves. They don't need the Magnavox Corporation CEO anymore. But Alfred DeCipio remains in charge of Magnavox Consumer Electronics, which is now a division of... Phillips's North American branch. So at this point, you still have Magnavox, but it's no longer an independent company. I'm not sure that Phillips is particularly enamored with this whole video game thing. I don't know that for certain, but you've got all these layers of corporate overlords. Nobody's really that happy with it. They're not successful in expanding the product line, which they'd really wanted to do. And now their costs are going up, which is very, very bad. But there is a savior out there because by this point, Integrated circuits have come down enough in price that you can consider ditching all of those discrete diodes and transistors and simplifying the electronics to once again lower the price of the system. By this time, a couple of things have happened. You have a couple of years of market research that gives you a better idea of what people are actually playing. You've also had the whole Pong boom happen in the arcade. And of course, uh, as we've talked about, Pong was partially derived from the fact that the Magnavox Odyssey had a table tennis game. It's clear that the ball and paddle style games are the most popular games on the Odyssey. People don't care about these convoluted haunted houses and analogics and Simon Says and all of this stuff. They just don't care. Furthermore, as the television market continues to change and the whole console television apparatus is breaking down more and more. People are getting smaller, more space-efficient TVs for their home. You don't have this standardization anymore. When the Odyssey launched in 72, putting in an 18-inch and a 25-inch overlay meant that you were covering most of the televisions out there. By 1974-75, that's no longer the case. 
televisions are coming in all sorts of sizes. And so having a standard overlay no longer works. So it's clear that they need to ditch the overlays because A, televisions are not standardized anymore. B, it's cheaper to ditch the overlays and we need to cut costs. And C, nobody's playing most of the games with the overlays anyway. So why do we have them? So they decide that they're going to do a really stripped down version of the system. The hardware on the inside is going to be essentially the same hardware, but it's going to be reduced to a series of chips made by Texas Instruments. Medium scale integration circuits, MSI circuits. When Atari comes out with Home Pong in 1975, it is the first major consumer electronics product that has a large scale integrated circuit. What these designators just mean is it's an indication of how many transistors you can fit on a single microchip. Medium scale integration can fit so many, up to like 100 or something like that, and large scale can fit many more than that. It's Moore's Law in operation before microprocessors. When Atari comes out in 75, they create the first system with an LSI, a large scale integration circuit. So they did their Pong on a single chip. But Atari were the pioneers of that. Until Atari did that, nobody quite realized the technology was ready for that. So Magnavox is a little behind. They're using medium-scale integration. So they can't get the Odyssey on one chip, but what they can do is get it onto three or four chips. So they contract with TI. TI does the four-chip solution. They scale down to just three games, tennis, hockey, and squash, which is just basically two people bouncing the ball off a wall. It's kind of a racquetball kind of game. The controls are still the same as the original Odyssey. The original Odyssey had a three-dial control. One dial controlled the up and down of your paddle, the vertical. One dial controlled the horizontal of your paddle, left and right. The third paddle allowed you to manipulate the ball ever so slightly because you didn't have the segmented paddle like you did in Atari's Pong. So the ball did not leave the paddle in any way other than a straight line. And so to put a little bit of spin on that ball, you had a third dial that you could slightly manipulate the ball with to give this a uh, similar effect. So the controls are the same, except they're built directly into the unit, which again saves costs. It's a small unit, small number of chips, much cheaper, no overlays. They do it in two versions. The reason they did it in two versions is by this time, other companies are starting to get interested in this home video game thing because Pong has taken off in the arcade and it looks like this might be a real market. So they knew that there were probably going to be knockoffs coming in after them. So basically they created the product they wanted to make and then they removed a chip from that product which limited its features a little bit but allowed them to sell it cheaper with the logic being that that would help them with any knockoffs or clones or competition that come along. They give these two systems the designation the Odyssey 100 and the Odyssey 200. Makes sense. Right. They're keeping the Odyssey branding because they're already established with that, but they have to have some kind of indicator that this is not the same system. The Odyssey 200 is actually the full system. It retails for $110. It has all three of those games, tennis, hockey, and smash, they actually called it, not squash, but similar idea. It also, for the first time, had a kind of form of on-screen scoring. The original Odyssey, you couldn't even keep score on it because, as I said, three dots and the line. That's it. Now that Pong's out and Pong had on-screen scoring, there is an expectation amongst the video game playing public 
that if you're going to have a table tennis game, there should be a score on the screen. You shouldn't have to keep track of that in your own head or on a piece of paper. But the Odyssey could not do alphanumeric characters. It didn't have a character generator chip. And they weren't going to put one in because they didn't want the cost. So they couldn't do a traditional score, one to one, two to three, etc. Instead, they added a couple more dots. They added a couple more rectangles Mm -hmm. on the top of either side of the screen. And each time a player scored a point, his rectangle moved a space further up the screen. That's how they kept score was with more dots. More dots. More dots. Dots for the dot lord. Many pongs handle it. They did that. And then they did the scaled down version, the Odyssey 100, which was able to retail quite a bit cheaper, $70 instead of $110. But they removed one of the chips so it didn't have the smash game. So it was just tennis and hockey. And it didn't have the scoring capability. They put some plastic sliders on the console itself that you could slide to keep score. And that allowed them to come down on price. They did produce the Odyssey that year as well, but it was the last hurrah. They were planning to discontinue the original Odyssey at the end of 75, but they still sold that through the end of the year. According to Ralph Baer's figures, which seem to be pretty accurate on the whole, I've compared them. Magnavox, as part of the patent lawsuits, released the total number of consoles they had sold through 1977 as part of their stipulations in the patent lawsuits. So we know the total number of consoles they sold in this time period, but we don't have it broken out by console type. Ralph Baer, using presumably his notes, because Sanders got a licensing fee on everything, so Magnavox would have had to report how many of each thing they sold to Sanders for the royalties. And presumably he has documents, or had documents, he's passed away, Because in his autobiography, he gives unit sales for individual models. If you add up the individual sales he gives for each individual model, it almost perfectly matches the total figure that Magnavox gave in the patent lawsuits. The fact that they're not exactly right can be quite simply laid down to rounding. I mean, it's within the margin of error. Mm -hmm. When you round sales off and you're doing it with multiple things over time, your numbers get further and further off reality. They're close enough that I actually believe Ralph Baer's numbers in his book. So uh, according to Ralph Baer, the total number of Magnavox Odyssey sold over five years was 367,000 units, which means that they would have sold about 80,000 Odysseys in 1975. We have figures direct from Magnavox for the first three years. That's 69,000, 89,000, 129,000. Those figures come straight from Magnavox through Bob Frisch in his deposition. We don't have their 1975 figures, but assuming Bear's final figure is correct and knowing that we have the first three years' figures correct, you subtract that and you're looking at about 80,000 systems sold in 75. They also released the 100 and the 200. The 100 and the 200 don't do quite as well as Magnavox had hoped. As seems to happen every time, the chip company was late. This seems to be chronic throughout the history of video games. Chip companies say that they can make this chip, they can make it do this, this, and this, and they can have it done by this time, and they are always wrong on the timing. Almost always. Texas Instruments was very late getting the chips in, which meant that they couldn't put the 
systems on the market until November. So they still got it out in time for the Christmas shopping season, but they would have liked to have had it out a little sooner than that. However, they were still able to sell over 100,000 units of the two systems before the end of the year, which meant that they were the top selling company. By this time, Atari has come in with their home Pong, and there are a couple of other companies that came in as well, very small novelty companies that sold a few thousand units each. So Magnavox was far and away the best-selling product in 1975. Over the entire life, I think most of those sales were probably in 75, but some of them carried over to 76. Over the life of those two systems, they sold about 100,000 Odyssey 100s and about 200,000 Odyssey 200s, so about 300,000 total, though not all of those were in that first holiday season. Now, they're kind of on top of the world. It doesn't last very long that they're on top of the world, but for a brief moment here, video games are the hot item of 1975 Christmas. They are predicted to be an even hotter item in 1976 Christmas, and Magnavox is the leading company in a suddenly hot field. And it's not Atari. No, it's not Atari. Not yet. Not yet. And they're owned by Philips. And they're owned by Philips. They're owned by the Dutch. But there's just one problem. They're behind on the technology. Because they are still dealing with Texas Instruments and MSIs, and the LSI revolution has happened. So in 1976, they prepare two more systems. They do the same kind of thing that they did in 75. They're going to do a high-end system and a low-end system to kind of make sure that they have a good spread on the market. The lead model, the big model, was the Odyssey 500. The Odyssey 500 had the same games as the 200, those same three games, Tennis Hockey Smash. But now it has real on-screen scoring. It has alphanumerics. Mm -hmm. You have numbers up there now. It's also in full color because uh, Home Pong was in color. It was kind of a cheating way of doing color. It has a rainbow color effect because they weren't really doing real color. I mean, it was real color, but they weren't really creating a color generator. They were just manipulating the television in a funny way. But this has real color, and it even has little people holding the hockey sticks and the tennis rackets. Ooh. This is their fancy guy, and it's selling for $130. So it's only $20 more expensive than the 200 had been, and it's a lot more capable. Then on the low end, they have the Odyssey 400, which, unlike the 100, it has all the games, it has the on-screen scoring, but it doesn't have the color graphics or the little stick figures. And that sells for $100. The problem is that now you have the Pong on a chip thing started. And the Pong on a chip thing means that you're getting an entire Pong game on a single chip. It's cheaper. And it can be mass-produced by uh, General Instrument, the company that comes up with the big Pong on a chip that everybody uses. So now you can get a video game system that costs $70 that has all the functionality of these Magnavox systems that are selling for $100 or more. Oh, and by the way, like Pong, it only has one control, one dial, instead of these three different dials that you have to use. So Magnavox realizes this is happening, and they actually cover themselves. They actually do a deal with GI. I think they were probably too far along. I don't know this for a fact. This is speculation. 
But I think they were probably too far along in their planning for the 400 and the 500, so they couldn't just say, we're not going to release these anymore. But at the same time, they saw the GI thing coming and were like, okay, we got to make one of these too. So they actually made the Odyssey 300. You'll notice we had skipped from 200 to 400 Mm -hmm. there. They also did the Odyssey 300 in 1976, which used the General Instruments Pong on a chip. So it was like all the other Pong on a chip consoles out there, a single control instead of the three controls and similar graphics and games and all of that to what other people were doing. So you have your whole choice of which one you want. Yep, they had a full range of systems. Their sales went up. They sold about half a million units. This was a different world. That was only good for third place. Newcomer Coleco with its Telstar unit took first place, just under a million. Atari took second place at about the same amount. Uh, It's actually quite possible that, because we don't know exactly what Atari's figures were, it's actually possible Atari was number one and Coleco number two, but they were kind of neck and neck at about a million units. Magnavox was third, but with half the sales. So you can see they're already starting to lose ground. They have been expanding their distribution at this point. In 1974, that year that they had their first kind of really successful year, Bob Frisch had been successful in getting the system into the Sears catalog. He was not successful in convincing his superiors that they could sell it in Sears, in the stores, because they still had their exclusivity situation. But he at least got it in the Sears catalog. It was a step forward. Frisch leaves the company in November 1975 and is replaced by another marketer by the name of John Helms. John Helms is finally able, I think because of the increasing competition, is finally able to convince his superiors to allow him to open up the distribution. And he starts really courting the toy industry very heavily and goes to Toy Fair in 1976 and starts pushing the toy buyers and the toy distributors and retailers to carry the system. So they have broader-based distribution in 1976. They have an array of options, but there's just too many companies involved in 76. So they end up in a distant third place, even though they still have a decent sales year of 500,000, about half a million units. So once again, they're at a crossroads. They're doing this thing. They're doing kind of okay in this thing, but it's still not as good as their television sales. They have corporate overlords that aren't entirely sold on what's going on. The technology is changing rapidly. The market is changing rapidly, and they're not sure that they want to stay in this business. So the question going into 1977 is, how do we go forward, and even do we want to go forward? At the end of the day, they they do decide to kind of stay in it. And that is where we will pick up the story in part two of our look at Magnavox and its involvement within the video game industry. You promised me this in one episode. I did, but then I started talking. That's always my mistake. I start talking. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. One of these days I'll learn to just stop. All right. Well, continuing listening to Alex's loud voice next time on Fake Create Worlds. 
Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 